Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. And welcome to another episode of Clyburn and Chronicles. March is Women's History Month. As we pause to celebrate, let us reflect on the important but often overlooked contributions that women have made to our country and to the history of our culture and society. From Harriet Tubman to Rosa Parks, Women have been fundamental to each juncture in our history and the story of America. It has also been women who have led the charge for equal rights and justice in our country. It is often women who fall on the moral backbone of our society. So, for this Women's History Month, I wanted to have it on a member of Congress who has been relentless in her fight for women's rights throughout her career. I welcome today's guest, my friend, Congressman Ramillo Jayapal, to discuss her work advocating on behalf of women, the progress that has been made, and the challenges women still face. Now, before I Go uh, to her. I want to give you a little bit of background on Pramila. Congresswoman Dyer Paul is the first South Asian American woman elected to the United States House of Representatives, the first woman to represent her district in Congress, and the first Asian American to represent Washington State at the federal level. She was born in India and grew up mostly in India, Indonesia, and Singapore. She immigrated to the United States by herself at the age of 16 to begin college at Georgetown University. After graduating with her MBA from Northwestern University, she briefly worked as a financial analyst before becoming an award-winning national advocate for women's immigration, uh, civil, and human rights. Elected to Congress in 2016, Congresswoman Jaya Paul is serving her fourth term in Congress, represented in Washington's seventh congressional district. In Congress, she serves on the House Judiciary Committee, 
where she serves as ranking member of the Subcommittee on Immigration, Integrity, Security, and Enforcement. She's also the chair of the Progressive Caucus, co-chair of the Immigration Task Force for the Congressional Asian Pacific Iron Asian Caucus, and a vice chair of the Congressional LGBTQ Equality Caucus, where she is the co-chair of the Transgender Equality Task Force. I want to thank her for being with us today and thank her uh, for the friendship that we share here in the Congress. Madam, uh, would you like to say a thing to? Yes, I do want to say something. Congressman Flybird, it has been such an honor and a privilege to serve with you and to watch your leadership at work on so many critical issues. You and I have also had the chance to partner together on important legislation like the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. You've been such a powerful voice for talking, particularly about how domestic workers in the South were left out of critical protections, labor protections over the years. And we aim to fix that along with our Vice President Kamala Harris, who was the Senate sponsor of that bill when she was in the Senate. Um, but I'm just grateful to you for uh, having me on the Clyburn Chronicles and really for helping to lift up women with everything you do. And certainly in this Women's History Month, what an honor it is for me to be with you. Well, thank you so much for being here. And we are uh, interested in uh, hearing your views on a few things. As you know, uh, being a trailblazer, uh, the first South Asian woman elected to the House, uh, the first woman uh, to represent your district, and of course, all the work you've done on behalf of women, especially minority women, throughout your entire career. Could you just describe the significance and the point of women's history month uh, from your viewpoint? Yes, I think that this is, uh, and by the way, you know, I think there's only been less than 100 women of color to ever serve in Congress since the founding of our country. So we still have a long way to go in terms of representation, but it's an honor for me to come here and know that I am not, I may be the first, but I'm not going to be the last. Um, when I served in the state Senate in Washington, my, I just served for two years before coming to Congress. I was actually the only woman of color in the state Senate at that time. And now I'm really proud to say we have more South Asian American women serving in our state legislature, more black women serving in both the House and the Senate. And when I came to Congress, I was the first person of color the Democrats had sent to Congress. Now I'm joined by my friend uh, Marilyn Strickland, also from Washington State. Uh, and I think that Women's History Month for me is really this opportunity to honor, respect, and lift up the women who have often been left out of history, whether it was the first women that were in computing uh, that now there's that beautiful movie about so everybody knows about the hidden figures, or whether it's about uh, really pushing for civil rights, for women's rights, um, really standing up and fighting for, as you said, the moral backbone of our country. So Women's History Month is a chance to lift up those women, the people, particularly women of color who often get left out of histories, and to realize that when 
we tell these stories, we lift up their resilience and their power in fighting for things that were not popular at the time. These were women who stood up. You mentioned Rosa Parks. My favorite is always Sojourner Truth. You know, women who stood up and fought despite what they were being told. And that is a lesson for us today as we take on so many more challenges. And I think when we think about um, Women's History Month, it's that opportunity for us to recommit to the work ahead. And that's, that's really lifting up, respecting, honoring those voices that came before us, and then recognizing we still have a lot of work to do. Well, thank you for that. You mentioned uh, uh, Sojourner Truth. I uh, uh, was going to ask, you probably know, uh, that I was married uh, to the same woman for uh, 58 years. And together we had uh, became parents to three wonderful uh, daughters, one of whom I think you uh, met and got to know, uh, uh, my eldest. Uh, I don't do much uh, without sitting down uh, with those uh, three daughters of mine. Very smart move. Tried <laughs> to uh, make decisions on what I should do next. Um, you mentioned so doing the truth. Uh, who are the, are there other women that uh, uh, you can you mentioned? Well, Mrs. Johnson, who was one of the four uh, women in the figures. Yeah. And I suspect a lot of my uh, uh, audience uh, may remember that movement, how important they were uh, to the space program. And particularly John Glenn, yeah. who I knew very well uh, as a senator and as a candidate for president. Uh, he didn't want to do anything uh, without finding out what they thought. Uh, I don't know about uh, the issue. Uh, have you had women like that in your life? I completely have. I, um, you know, my grandmother was an incredibly strong woman in her time. Um, she never went to college, but she was um, brilliant in my view and also fierce. You know, she played tennis wearing a sari. Um, and she, no, many women were out there. The tennis was not a big thing, but she found a place where she saw people and she decided she wanted to do that. She played football, she or what we call soccer, I should say, in India. Um, things that women really were not allowed to do or seen, um, you know, to, to uh, have a place in. And her sister was another woman who really inspired me. She, she was my great aunt. And believe it or not, she was the mentor for Kamala Harris's aunt. So she was one of the first OBGYNs, female OBGYNs in India, and she used to work with village women across India. And when I was living in villages across India um, about a decade ago, uh, I would meet these women who would literally get down and want to touch my feet in respect for her, not for me, for her. And what she did for them, she wrote the definitive textbook for OBGYN schools and was the dean of a medical school up north in India. And guess who was her, the person who came after her to take over the editing of the book? It was Kamala Harris's uh, aunt. And there's actually a beautiful dedication to my great aunt um, from, Kamala, from Vice President Harris's aunt um, at the beginning of the book. So those were incredible women in my life. My mother as well uh, was an English literature 
major, um, got a master's degree when very few women were getting master's degrees, really loved language and spent her life teaching people to speak English, um, and now also has a degree as a therapist and does really amazing counseling work at the age of 83. Um, but there were also historical figures. I men mentioned Sojourner Truth, of course, Rosa Parks for everybody, um, and a number of uh, Asian American women who really led the path, particularly on fighting back against the Japanese internment um, and, you know, fighting immigration, xenophobic immigration policy over the years. So um, those are all inspirations, but perhaps the biggest inspiration for me has been uh, the women that as an activist I've worked with and been on the ground sometimes and what our dear friend, the late John Lewis called Good Trouble, um, undocumented women who, you know, uh, had everything to lose, but were ready to fight um, for the rights that that all people should have to be treated with dignity and respect. So I bring them always into the room with me, all those generations, my own personal generations, but also those that I have the honor to work on behalf of here in Congress. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad uh, that you uh, really connected uh, your family, uh, your native uh, land. Uh, if you were to come into my office now, uh, look over uh, on the wall uh, over my uh, desk, you will see uh, a rendering of my hottest Gandhi. Yes. I, um, uh, I just grew up. Uh, literally worshiping that guy. Yeah. Uh, uh, but for him, uh, there would have been no Martin Luther King Jr. That's right. Uh, that's how this interaction here you are, share with my listeners today uh, the great importance uh, that your family interaction uh, with uh, the vice president's family right. and the impact that's having on all of us today. Um, people tend to uh, not really get a good appreciation for how small the world is. That's right. Uh, it's right. a small world. And you just pointed that out. Just this past Saturday night, I was in Charleston. I went to do a play, I'll do, um, uh, take in a play uh, on uh, the mother of the movement. Now, I know uh, people call Rosa Parks the mother of the movement. The media made that decision. Martin Luther King Jr. always referred to Septima Ponce Clark, who taught Rosa Parks about Highland Highland School. There's this great play that I just saw Saturday night about Septima Clark, uh, an unsung hero. Yes. But the kind of people that, uh, as you're great on, uh, make these significant impacts uh, and they show up in generations to come. That's right. And here is your great uh, aunt having such a great impact on Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States today, who is not just the first woman, the first Asian. I call it Afro-Asian woman. That's right. That's right. We, that's pride. Uh, Absolutely. You know, 
all of us, so many of us can take pride in her being where she is. And you're reminding me when you talk about Gandhi and, and um, it's funny, right above my desk, I have uh, the Gandhi talisman, which I've had in front of me forever, which basically asks you whenever you're confronted with a difficult decision to ask you to think about the most vulnerable person and imagine whether what you are contemplating will move them forward towards freedom or not. I just love that so much. But it reminds me that the pe the people that led the salt march for British independence, I mean, for indep Indian independence from the British were women. They were at the front of the line leading that march to the sea to show how important salt was and how important freedom was um, for, for them. And so Gandhi actually really relied a lot on some very powerful women, women like Ayla Bhatt was kind of at the front of that. She founded later the Self-Employed Women's Association that worked with women across, across India. And a lot of the women that I met on the ground I would name as inspirations as well. They were the ones who were out there saving the forests. I'm sure you've heard of the Chipko movement where women hugged trees to stop them from being sure. down. Um, so I think we have these beautiful connections across uh, Afro and Indian um, communities and also very much shared goals for what we need to do to move us all forward. That's great. Now you cheer the uh, the progressive cause. Uh, and uh, as a woman, uh, you know a bit about the challenges uh, mm -hmm. that we currently have. Uh, share with my listeners uh, uh, some of the challenges you see today and some of the advice that you might want to hand out uh, to all of us as to how to come to grips with these challenges. You know, I always say, uh, this is a great country. It is not needed to be made great. We've got to figure out how to make this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all of its people. Uh, and that's a great, that's the great challenge that we have. Uh, if it's education, healthcare, housing, whatever it is, how do we make it accessible and affordable for all? I've worked with you on some of this stuff, so I know that uh, you know a lot of it. Share with some of my listeners. Yes, well, you've mentioned some of the issues that are at the forefront, and you know, I have to thank you for helping to get President Biden in. And uh, I think that these last two years, this last term for us as Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate, very thin margins, but under the president's leadership, we were able to take giant steps forward for the people. And I think if you look at the fact that we're finally reducing drug prices for seniors and the, we want to do more, but that is a big first step to getting our foot in the door to say to these pharmaceutical companies, you need to negotiate on drug prices, capping the cost of insulin. Now we're starting to see drug companies come out and say, okay, we're not going to just do it for seniors. We need to do it for everybody. You and I have worked so hard on expanding Medicaid in the states that uh, still have have Republican governors that have refused to expand Medicaid, despite the fact that the Affordable Care Act did that. We have that step to take. We can do that by making sure that we're getting uh, health care to be more affordable, not just through subsidies, 
but I believe through really changing the whole healthcare system so it takes profits out of the equation and prioritizes healthcare. But also housing. This was an area that the Progressive Caucus fought very hard for in Build Back Better. And of course, we have the great Maxine Waters as part of the Progressive Caucus, chair of the um, finance, uh, Financial Services Committee. Housing is a big priority for her. But we were pushing very hard for $150 billion investment in housing. That's a big priority for the Progressive Caucus. We got it passed through the House, but unfortunately, it didn't make it through the Senate. And we know that families of color and women in particular are deeply disproportionately burdened by the high cost of housing. Similarly, um, the Progressive Caucus has prioritized universal childcare and universal pre-K. When you think about women today and you think about Women's History Month, the number one, actually the number, the two biggest inflationary costs that I hear from all the time is housing number one and childcare number two. These are massive issues for women and for families across the country. And unfortunately, Congressman, you know, we are one of the very few, if not only, countries that does not provide paid leave, pay equity, uh, you know, universal childcare. These are things that other countries have realized we can't get women back into the workforce as we're having a problem right now doing because they can't afford the cost of childcare. So those are all priorities for the Progressive Caucus. I'll throw in one more. You know, you and I have been both out there pushing for um, a $15 minimum wage, a higher minimum wage. Um, we, of course, have passed that in the House under Chairman Scott's leadership. Uh, but we really need to make sure we're addressing wages. And there's something that I have been working with the White House on that I'm hoping we can get done. It's a priority of the Progressive Caucus that disproportionately affects women and particularly women of color, and that is raising the overtime threshold. This is a big place where we can make a significant difference. President Obama tried to raise it. Unfortunately, it was at the end of his term. Trump rolled it back. If we do this and if we raise it to, say, $79,000, we can actually benefit 31 million workers across the country, and the majority of those will be women. So. These are all top of the list for us. We've been working closely with the White House um, to try and get these things done. And of course, for me, top priorities as for you is voting rights and George Floyd justice and policing. These are big things that affect um, mothers across the country, as is gun reform. We're looking at another shooting in Tennessee today. Um, and we should not have these assault rifles out there. We should be passing sensible gun reforms so that no more mothers are getting left without their children, holding their children's bodies, burying them far too early because guns are out in our schools, in our communities. Um, and so these are all big priorities for us at the Progressive Caucus. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you mentioned the, just so uh, to emphasize, really, uh, you mentioned um, the expansion uh, of Medicaid. Um, it was 39 states yesterday, yeah. uh, 40 today. Yeah. North Carolina uh, yes. on, on board today. I'm waiting for uh, South Carolina to come, uh, but it's now uh, only 10 states left without expanding Medicaid. But you know, you also mentioned uh, capping the cost of insulin uh, for senior citizens. Now, 
it's kind of interesting. We cap it at thirty-five dollars a month for anybody on Medicare. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, they <laughs> come along and says they're going to cap their insulin costs at thirty-five dollars for everybody purchasing it. It's going to drive the cost down. That's so a lot of people criticized us when we said, "Well, you're only doing it for uh, people on Medicare. What about the rest of us?" Well, the journey of a thousand miles with the edge of a single step. We took that step. Now, Eli Lilly has taken a step. And then uh, you also mentioned the $2,000 uh, that's going to be the max uh, for uh, out of pocket costs. Uh, no matter how much it costs uh, for the procedure or for the medicine, um, $2,000 all you pay. These are significant things That's right. uh, that starts the ball rolling, and hopefully we can keep it going. Because I have most the juvenile that medics that come to my office, uh, it's not about race when they come to this. I had a meeting not long ago. Uh, the children, the juvenile diabetes, not a single one in the group in my office uh, was a person of color. Uh, so diabetes, not no, no uh, race or, or, or gender. That's and so we need to do this. Uh, these children, many of them will be born into families that cannot afford uh, the high cost of insulin, which should not be costing so much. We know the history of insulin, and we know how long it's been around. It should not be caused. My late wife lost a battle for diabetes. Oh, I'm sorry. And, um, when you, I saw her bill, twelve hundred dollars a month just for insulin. Uh, today, it's going to be thirty-five dollars a month. That's great. Uh, it's a, it's a big accomplishment, and I think there's so many things that we've been able to do, including you know um, the biggest investment ever in climate change, taking on climate change. I mean, uh, finally taxing the wealthiest in our country. I mean, these are all things where the money, all of that work that we did, we paid for through just making our tax system a little bit fairer. And I think at the end of the day, when we think about Women's History Month and we think about women, women are on the front lines of fighting for every one of these things because they're looking after themselves. They're working themselves. They're taking care of kids. They're taking care of partners, spouses, loved ones. And again, we come back to long-term care and you know the real need to take on the rights of those who are providing that long-term care, home health care workers, these are all primarily women, women of color. So it is going to be a priority for us. And the president has said he wants to sign that bill on Domestic Workers Bill of Rights if we can get it through. So counting on you to help me make that happen as soon as we get the house back. Absolutely. We're going to work on it in the meantime and give the other side a chance to get right with it. Well, uh, I want, you know, uh, I would be remiss if I did not uh, ask you to share uh, with my audience today uh, some of what we need to be uh, doing in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade. Those three daughters of mine, uh, uh, they, at least one of them would be listening to this. Uh, so I want to make sure that yeah. we say once again how important it is for us to stay focused on reproductive rights. That's exactly right. And I say this uh, as actually one of the one in four women across the country who has had an abortion. 
Um, it was not an easy choice for me. I didn't, uh, I didn't even tell my mom about it until much later when, as a Congress member, I decided I needed to speak out and use my platform to educate people. Um, and I can tell you that the majority of the country, no matter what party they're from, agrees with us that this is about basic freedom. This is about the freedom to make choices about our own bodies. It's about the freedom to make the medical decisions we want without a Supreme Court justice in our bedrooms with us. It is about the freedom to make sure that we have economic security because we as, as women, as pregnant people, we are the ones who have to deal with the health consequences and the economic consequences. And so what we need to do is we need to codify abortion rights. And we also need to ensure access to abortion and reproductive care, particularly for black, brown, indigenous, poor women who don't have that opportunity even now. And uh, what we are seeing is Republicans badly miscalculating because they are not seeing the fury of women and families across the country who are furious that the Republican Party has turned into the party that is taking away freedoms. And, you know, Congressman Clyburn, I believe Democrats are actually the party of freedom, of family, and of faith. And I think about it this way. We're the party of freedom because we believe in the freedom to vote, the freedom to make choices about our own bodies, the freedom to have economic security. We are the party of family because we believe in all families, regardless of what they look like. And we believe in supporting families through things like childcare and pre-K and paid leave and gender equity. And we are the party of faith because we believe in all faiths and we believe in those who don't have a particular faith that they subscribe to. But we also believe that we are the party of faith in our constitution, faith in our democracy, faith that somebody like me an immigrant at the age of 16 by myself could come over here with nothing in my pocket and become a member of Congress. So on abortion rights, we, we know that we are going to fight until we get abortion codified. And I believe we can do that. All we need to do is take back the House and have a couple more votes in the Senate so that we can get rid of that racist Jim Crow filibuster and finally pass the things that the American people want, including um, codifying abortion. Well, that's right. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that you've uh, done that in a way uh, that will make everybody proud. We are, uh, you know, I think you know that I uh, chair the House Democrats Faith Working Group. Yes. And I be very strongly in faith, yes. in family, in freedoms. And that's what this part has been about. And I don't think we say it enough. I don't they've think so. They, uh, they've got the Freedom Caucus over there. They've got the caucus, but we've got the policies. So let them keep caucusing, and let's talk about uh, the policies that bend toward freedom uh, that so much a part of what our party is all about. But you also involved uh, last year in Yuppin, uh, get a piece of legislation passed that I want you to uh, talk a little bit about today. That was the in the force arbitration of sexual assault yes. and sexual harassment. That was um, uh, one of our former members. It was big on that, uh, but you helped her get it across the finish line. Yes. 
Yes, I'm so excited about this. This was a bill that President Biden signed into office. Sherry Bustos uh, and I were the leads on it. Um, and I sit on Judiciary Committee, so I shepherded it through our Judiciary Committee. This is uh, significant for about 30 million women across the country. And a lot of people don't know this, but when you sign a contract of you know any sort, whether it's a work contract or even a contract to rent a car, whatever it is, you are signing away your right to a day in court. That's basically what forced arbitration is. And in particular, these forced arbitration clauses are inserted in the midst of, you know, two, three page long documents and people sign it, don't realize what they've done. Well, what we were able to do is say in cases of sexual harassment, we are ending the use of forced arbitration contracts. They will no longer be valid. And in fact, they're even, uh, they can be retroactive to a certain date. And this allows people, women, to speak up when they have been uh, sexually harassed or abused in their workforce. And we had, Congressman, some horrifying testimony from women who came before the committee and talked about the incredible abuse that they had undergone at the hands of a boss, a colleague, somebody in their workplace, but they were not allowed to speak out about it because of these forced arbitration clauses that they had signed without even knowing what they were signing away. And so one uh, very, very, very powerful woman, Tatiana Spottiswood, actually testified under subpoena from us and therefore was allowed to share her story. And because of the power of her story at that hearing, the, uh, the, the president of the company that had sexually harassed her was fired the very next day. And her voice allowed us to have this incredible, overwhelming support, bipartisan support, I will say, for the ending forced arbitration in sexual harassment cases. So that bill was signed into law. And because of that bill, because of the work that uh, you and I and the, our entire uh, Congress that voted for this bill did, it means that 30 million American women will no longer have their voices stifled anymore in situations of sexual assault and harassment. Well, let me just thank you for that. No, Sherry Busto, very good friend, still is a good friend, yeah. was a colleague and a good friend. Uh, and the two of you uh, are to be commended uh, for getting that bill across the, uh, the finish line. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but for the uh, 18 years prior to coming to Congress, uh, I ran the agency in South Carolina uh, that dealt with all of these issues, oh, uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment, uh, and you're so right about that. Uh, so many times uh, we had women uh, that come in and, and um, read it and signed away some very uh, significant rights uh, in order to get uh, this settlement. And sometimes the settlement was okay, uh, but they never should have uh, been forced uh, into uh, signing these kinds of, of settlements. Now, I know I've been taxing on your time, and, uh, and maybe some of the listeners uh, are waiting for out to hear your uh, concluding comments. But, you know, in view of the fact that uh, uh, women, especially women of color, uh, are living in two worlds today, uh, we are celebrating uh, now that we have a woman of color 
is vice president of the United States of America, a first African-American woman now sitting on the United States Supreme Court. And as you said today, uh, we are, are celebrating uh, women for significant contributions, much of which a lot of people just don't know. Right. Uh, I'm surprised every day by the number of people when I bring something up that said, I never knew that. Um, and to talk to people this past Saturday night who had never even heard of September Clock until it started advertising uh, this play. Uh, those are challenges uh, that uh, we've got to overcome. Uh, and I know because of your own experiences, uh, both as an immigrant, as a young woman of color coming to this country uh, alone, uh, navigating through our educational system and becoming a member of the United States Congress, uh, what would you share with my listeners today? What kind of advice did you want to give that you think uh, will be beneficial uh, to my listeners today? Well, I probably have two pieces of advice. Um, one is trust yourself. I think many women have been raised in a culture where sometimes we doubt ourselves. We think that we're not able to do something and we look to somebody that came before us to say, oh, wait a second, I can do that. And so I always tell people, young women in particular that I mentor, to trust your own heart. Don't try to be somebody that you aren't, just be who you are and know that that is really what the world is looking for. So that's the first one. And the second one is um, that when people tell you that things aren't possible, which often as an activist and a progressive activist of that, uh, I'm told, you know, don't be naive, don't be idealistic. Uh, politics is the art of the possible. I always say, it is our job as organizers and activists, and I know that the women that came before me would say this as well, to push the boundaries of what is seen as possible. Because the possible is not static. It is something that is created by a certain group of people, but it is not static and it can be moved and it can be changed by your hands and your work um, and your effort to really make something possible that perhaps wasn't seen as possible before. And I think that was true if we think about the civil rights movement, it was true when we think about ending slavery, it was true when we think about the women's rights movement, it was true in every major movement in the country. It's not like people said, oh, that's a great idea, let's go do it. People actually had to fight for it and they had to make it possible. And so I just say to everybody out there, remember, that you can have a vision, you can have a dream, and you can make it possible with your effort. Well, thank you so much for that. It's interesting that you would uh, conclude that way. I, uh, I think I was share with you that I'm writing this, my third book. And uh, this book, uh, I'm calling before I was first, there were eight. Uh -huh. uh, and I am writing about the eight African-Americans to serve in Congress uh, from South Carolina. Uh, before I was elected. Uh, the big problem, of course, is between number eight and number nine, 
nine to five years. That's uh, right. Uh, in, in concluding our comments on one of those people, I talked about how much he did to make the impossible possible. And that's what this is all about. That's uh, it. Uh, that's your advice. Uh, the things you can do. Make that which is impossible, possible. Exactly. And thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for the great service you give to our great country. And thank you so much uh, for the friendship uh, that we have. I know uh, that we are going to continue to do things that will make the impossible possible. So beautiful. Thank you so much for your leadership, for your mentorship. And I can't wait to come see you in South Carolina one of these days. Look forward to it. Fish fries coming up. Oh, yes. I got to come. I got to come. The famous. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening today. You have been listening to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.